0: hear the word of the Lord, this is what God has to say. So pick up reading with me in verse 20 of Matthew 16. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Let's pray. Oh God, visit us in Your Word this morning. Conform us to the image of Christ. Transform us. Redefine us. Make us new yet this morning because of what You've already accomplished. Lord, we need it. We need the Gospel. So Lord, in this moment, make much of Yourself. In our weaknesses, and our frailties, and our confusions, clear us up in light of Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. You know, as we've gone through several passages here at Four Oaks Midtown, one of the things that has been an interesting burden to me is we are preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And you're like, no, duh, Dan, we've been doing that for several weeks now. But for me, on the other hand, I've already preached through the Gospel of Matthew as I shut down a church plant named King's Cross Church. It was a painful thing and a monumental thing. And even this very passage that I'm getting an opportunity to preach today, we were preaching, I was preaching it actually, in the building that we were closing down to move to another building. And even as I was doing that, I was looking around, being reminded of all the things that God had done in that building as I preached this passage. And yet here I am preaching it to you and all of those meanings and things that happen, they run together. And as I Think about this passage. I could just look back and wonder what the disciples would be thinking with one another as they would sit there, and one of them would give Peter the elbow. He's like, "Hey, remember that time Jesus called you Satan?" Yeah, there's a, there's a lot that we go through. This is probably a monumental experience. In one moment, Peter's been called like getting a new name, right? Sturdy, and he's a rock or something of that sort. And then next thing you know, Jesus is turning to him in this very passage and saying. Satan? Well, that's, that's interesting. There's things that we remember, right? There's things that we stake our life on, and as they would have sat accessory of Philippi, this place 120 miles away from Jerusalem, and Jesus tells them, we're going to Jerusalem to conquer. They're like, yes! And then that's not in the way they think. So much of our experiences and our thoughts need to be redefined. And as I think back to a church plan, did I win or lose? (laughs) Did I succeed or fail? And I'm certain that you sit here in these pews and have the same sort of things go on as you review your week this past week. Have I succeeded or failed? Am I growing in strength or am I genuinely falling apart? Is the cross and resurrection defining me or is something else? And I'm willing to bet, just like every worship service, we need to be redefined in light of what Jesus has done. We we need it. We desperately need the gospel. Jesus is conquering. He's going to invade. And I hope this morning he invades your heart. You may or may not have heard the story of Wrong Way Marshall. Wrong Way Marshall. On October 25th, 1964, there was a football game played between... The Minnesota Vikings and the San Francisco 49ers. Most of you probably are like, hey, look, I wasn't even born before 1964. What what do I know of this? Well, this particular character, Wrong Way Marshall, got his name from this game. And in honor of football ending last week, I'm telling you this illustration. But this particular individual named Jen Marshall led the league in fumble recoveries. He was known for his sturdiness and his reliability on the defense called the Purple People Eaters. He he was good, a great player. But a pass was completed, the ball was fumbled, and Jim Marshall picked up the ball and ran the wrong way. As he runs the wrong way, you can imagine everything that his teammates were thinking. Stop! Stop! That's not at all what happened, and and, then what adds to the horror of his own shame is you can imagine getting into the end zone, turning around and seeing your team being like, get out of the end zone, man. That isn't even what happened. He took the ball as he enters the end zone and throws it into the stands, automatically making it a safety right then and there. And the first thing that the 49ers came up to say to Jim Marshall was, thanks, Jim. I mean, this is just terrible, right? The the, the little redemption in this story is Jim Marshall ends up like sacking and strip sacking or something of the sort and causing a fumble, and they don't end up losing the game. But you can imagine what it would feel like if you did end up losing the game by, say, two points. You know, a lot of times when we read this particular passage or other passages, we get accustomed to it, and we don't realize that the disciples, when they were hearing Jesus talk, would have thought of him as going the wrong way. This is not the way to win. They would have considered him a wrong way Messiah. What are you thinking? You, You may be here today in your own life thinking of God taking you in the wrong direction. that This Savior doesn't know what He's doing. He's blundered. He's made a big mistake. And what we need is our wins and losses to be redefined, don't we? We need to understand what it means to win. And Jesus' win isn't coming in the way that the disciples would have thought. Look with me again back at verse 20 and watch this start. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, this is complicated. Tell, tell no one that he is the Christ. If you're going to win, this is not the way to do it, Jesus. Just a little bit of advice. If you're trying to conquer Jerusalem, you should probably bring a whole army of people with you. If you're going to be this true king, it's time to tell everyone the way that we would tell everyone about any blood. Like, hey, look, let me make sure that everybody knows that I'm kind of a big deal. But this Messiah, Jesus, is going to be known and revealed and conquer through his cross. He's not going to be celebrated in the way that it would be easy to celebrate. They're not looking for this kind of Messiah. In a plus and minus world, it would be honest for many of us to realize that what we do as we face this world is we try to live within it. We try to have a righteousness that lives outside of the work of Jesus and being revealed in his cross. We try to show everyone that we're pretty big. We're kind of a big deal. Look at my resume. I was in the board meeting and look at all the wins I had. Look at all the things that are going well in my life. Look at the size of my house, the size of my car, the size of all of my stuff. I'm kind of huge. I'm trending. There's a pain in this life that presses on us to perform, 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 or Forget your performance. Just do whatever you want. That's the way you actually win. Liberate yourself from the system altogether by actually figuring out whatever and whoever you want to be, which sounds horrifying. And this is the world that we're constantly in. Let them know. Tell them. And Jesus says, let it be a secret. As this goes on in verse 21, notice what else Jesus says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He's getting this right. You got to go to Jerusalem. That's the center, like the son of David. That's who you are. Let's go. We're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is getting it right. And then he says something. No. What? The very next word, we're going to Jerusalem. You're, yes, let's do it. Let's, why are we in Galilee? We, the, this is the rednecks. They don't even speak like, proper English or probably Hebrew or maybe Aramaic, right? These are the rednecks. I'm done with the rednecks. We're going to Jerusalem. Let us conquer and suffer many things. That's not, that's when I know. Suffer many things. Well, from who? From the elders and chief priests and scribes? Well, those are all the guys who know the Bible. They should recognize you for who you are, Jesus, and bow down and worship. And Jesus says, they're not, they're not going to see me for who I am. They're not going to recognize me. I'm going to suffer. Okay, suffer a little bit, but then we're going to win, right? That's it. That we're just going to suffer and be killed, is what Jesus says. And on the third day, be raised, tying it back to the sign of Jonah that is given to this generation, that is masked to their eyes, that they cannot see as Jesus walks in this world. You know, this secret notion of a Messiah, a suffering Messiah, a dying Messiah, one crucified and laid waste to, doesn't ring true as what it means to win or look like you're supposed to look if you're going to be the Christ. And this is playing itself out in all of our lives. It's playing itself out in your life right now. This morning, one of the things that we joyously practiced was confessing our sin And to a dying world that thinks that the way you live is by holding on to your righteousness, that looks like a loss. And many times in your own life, when you've been prodded by God Himself to confess your sin, you know you felt like, nope, not going to do that. I'm going to hold on to that. That doesn't equal life to me. That equals death. And what God has called us to do is to win. And it wait, but the way that we win is by confessing our sin. And then when we face suffering of any kind, well, let's find a way to escape that. Or if we watch someone else suffer or go through some sort of debilitating pain or agony, well, they're a loser. The best way to win is to avoid all suffering. Forget what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, we're skipping over that part. But the Scripture comes at us over and over again and confronts us with all these things about what it means to win. What about allowing anyone to take advantage of you? You ever notice that that's not the way you win according to many people's eyes? Look, if you're a winner, you don't let people take advantage of you. You make sure that you're defended in all cases. What about even being misunderstood? You ever let someone misunderstand you? No, no. I'm ready and willing quickly to let them know exactly who I am and what they've missed it. And sitting in all of these problems and pains for us, it it can drive us nuts because we don't like to be misunderstood. We don't, it feels like we're losing. But in Christ Jesus, we're constantly being redefined by his work in life, death, and resurrection. Satan would have you. Satan would he would talk to your soul and say, "Let's go a different way. We're going to have that same conversation that happened in the garden, happen with us, and it's fixing to come up here with Peter." But we're constantly thinking to ourselves, "That's the wrong way. That's the wrong way." When Jesus is pulling us and, and calling us out of our natural inclinations into a new incl- inclination that He's driving home in our hearts. So look, He. Peter, uh, Jim Marshall got the nickname Wrong Way Marshall. And we walk in a world where people often look at us and they think we're following the wrong way Messiah because that's not winning. That's losing. What we find is that Peter got a different nickname in this story. And in all of that, it um, is quite complicated to be in one minute recognized in one way and in another way this way. He has this moment where he thinks what he must do is he's got to set the record straight. He's going to have a rebuke with Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you want to sign up to do something, make sure that it's not confronting Jesus about how he's wrong. You don't want to get on that team. That's the bad idea. But here Peter sits. He's going to confront his rabbi. And you can imagine he's like, yeah, Jesus just called me this new name, Peter, and I'm pretty sturdy, and heaven revealed this to me, and I've got a job to do in this particular moment. Jesus, I've got something to say to you. So often in all of our lives, we need rebuke and correction. We think, usually in two streams, right? There's one kind of person that's like, you should never rebuke anybody because that's not nice. And then there's another stream that's like, we should rebuke everyone, All the time, whenever we see anything wrong, and they're like hammers in search of a nail. But in our passage, we're watching rebuke work out in a beautiful way where the same thing that's happening with my kids is, this is one of the ways that it works for them. They come to me as their dad and they say, Dad, that one. And they immediately think that it's my responsibility to bring the thunder on that one. When oftentimes it's that one that's the problem. You know, this happened in an interesting way in seminary. I'm sure you guys who do know anything about seminary know this story, or the, at least I do. I used to love watching people try to debunk the professor. They'd raise a hand, and I'd be like, oh, here it goes. Mr. Actually is at work. Actually... And I was like, here it comes. Professor's going to let him have it. The rebuke is being returned. And I would take such joy in that. I bet you do too. And then there's this one professor. And he says, there's some of you who are really arrogant. No, no, I'm not talking about the ones that are uh, raising their hands, asking all the questions. It's all of you who are out there who share in the same pains of those problems. But you're not having the courage enough to be known that you don't get it. See, what Peter's doing in our passage is he's looking like the rest of the disciples. He's ready to rebuke Jesus. And so often in each one of our lives, that's the same story that's playing out. The same story is playing out with each one of us. We think God is doing a bad job at being God. In our prayer life, you can hear it where you go before the Lord and say, Lord, got a bone to pick. You're doing a bad job. And meanwhile, many times in our life, this is despite the fact that as time and life goes on, you realize, you know, God was not doing a bad job. The problem was with me. And my prayer life as I participated in it was slowly changing and transforming me into an honest conversation with the Lord about my problems. The worst thing that could have happened is no one say anything and everybody hold on to the fact that Jesus doesn't need to be crucified. Christ came to be crucified. And this is a beautiful rebuke for Peter. Look at this passage. Going back to verse 22. And Peter took him aside. There it is. And began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Oh man, bummer. Notice these next words though, because these are the words I guarantee you, you would not want to have to hear. This is what grows Peter into his name. It's important to take that into consideration. This is going to change Peter. This is the rebuke of the Lord coming. And the rebuke of God is better than his silence. So hear it today. I wonder who needs to hear the rebuke of the Lord in the life that you're living. Watch it. Here we go. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Because Peter started talking like the serpent in the wilderness and saying, you know what you could do in, like, all the way back in Matthew 4? You could get a kingdom without a cross. You don't need a cross. And Peter was talking like the serpent. The kingdom would come through the cross. You are a hindrance to me? Those words themselves would shake our soul. You are a hindrance. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Think about this in its beautiful irony. It was the God of the universe who had revealed who the Christ was to Peter. And now in this particular moment, it is Peter who has changed the narrative and moved in a different direction and is no longer living in that revealing. He's figuring things out for himself. And he is being graciously and kindly rebuked in stern and straightforward words because ultimately what's happened in Peter is he's become a stumbling block. That's what he's become. He's become a mistake. He's going astray. He needed to become a rock and firm and sturdy. But what he's become is what Matthew 18 would say is he's leading others into temptation and astray. And as I grew up in church, I'm sure you probably did too. Occasionally what a stumbling block meant is that you never did anything wrong. If you were a stumbling block, those are the people who do bad stuff. But sometimes a great way that you could be a stumbling block is by never admitting that you are going the wrong way. But as Peter goes this particular long way and is showing his flimsiness and one way being this way and the next way being that way, he, he's reminding us that God is at work in us, sturdying us up. He he's being grown so that he wouldn't have to have a millstone strung about his neck and him being thrown into the Sea of Galilee itself. Peter's going to become sturdy and believe in Jesus more better. You know, this Jesus would be crucified publicly and he was not going to hide. He was going to be revealed in this particular way as the savior of the universe. And Peter didn't get it. That's not where Peter was. What I find absolutely fascinating is the story arc because it continues with Peter, right? Peter denies the Lord. He denies ultimately at the point where a little girl scares him think about that. For, we just like, sit with this just a second. In these three denials, Peter is scared of a little girl. And by the time Pentecost happens, he stands up and says, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Well, that's quite a transition this transition that the Lord was making in his life as Peter experienced God in resurrection and life, what Peter knows is that he can trust this Messiah. What he says is going to be true even as he's told, do you love me? And as the story of Peter continues, there's so many different events where he bumps his head like a buffoon. And who can relate? The chaos of Peter's life is often the chaos that we experience. And he not only does he preach at Pentecost, the next thing you know, he falls apart in Galatians chapter two. But not only that, he's the same dude who recorded these words from first Peter chapter two. And I want you to hear him. Watch what Peter says about the Lord Jesus and sturdiness and all this rock business. I find it fascinating. As you marvel over this passage, you realize what Peter's talking about is a radical transformation to sturdiness about putting off malice and deceit and envy and all of these anti-virtues and being grown into the house of the Lord, built on the chief cornerstone that is Christ, the rock that people will stumble over if they do not believe. And this is what we're called to be as the people of God, as God renews us and we believe the gospel and we make a departing for our, from our sins. But we walk in, a, in the chaos of it, where we're strugglers, where we need rebuke from our Lord. I wonder who needs that rebuke today so that they might move from a stumbling block to sturdiness. Not only has Jesus redefined our wins and losses and moved us from being stumbling blocks to sturdy, He's also redefining our life and death. You know, you have a 100% chance of dying in here, in case you were wondering. Like, all of us will ultimately eat it. It's what we do. We die. And all of that, um, there are all kinds of challenges to it. I, I, I find our honest temptation to resist it. One of the things I loved about what we did with Ash Wednesday is you're reminded death is coming. You are dust, and to dust you will return. And as we remind ourselves of these big things, we remind ourselves that we need to be redefined in light of Jesus' life and death. You know, most of us, we can pretend to take death seriously and use wrinkle cream and try to work out a lot. But do we take death and life seriously in the light of what Jesus has done? There's a pain that comes with it, a, a horror that comes with it, and we need hope that comes with it as well. And these words from Jesus in this particular passage are significant for us. So let's return to him in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's extraordinary, mainly because of where it's tying you to. And Jesus yet again is saying to these disciples something that he's said before. And he, just as he repeated to them his prediction of his death and resurrection, he's having to constantly say that. But I believe he also has to constantly say to them, follow me. Just like he says to all of our hearts all the time, follow me. And these passages, they take us back to other places in Matthew's gospel where Jesus has said, follow me. And Jesus confronts Peter once before already where he stands in his vocation at these nets and says, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And in a very similar way, what happens with Matthew is he finds him at a tax collector's booth and he says to him, follow me and leave this behind. And Matthew leaves his tax... But I feel like today, and if you say something like that, it's like, hey, Dan, does that mean we should all quit our jobs? Maybe. Maybe. But there's a sense in which God can call us to be crucified in multitudes of kinds of ways, right? There are things today that you're living in light of that they need to die. Your life and death must be defined by Jesus' definition of life and death. And when he calls to our hearts and says, follow me, it's a move to crucify, to be crucified. He says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I love this because as Matthew records this, think of it, he's the one that left the tax booth. And we've just had this episode here with Peter and here's what he has to say. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Well, this is Jesus saying it, correct? But as Matthew records it, I find it interesting. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, reminding us of the Beatitudes and what Jesus continues to say over and over again about how he is worth it. For what will it profit a man? Well, that's interesting. I I wonder if those words rung in Matthew's ears, right? What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? I can't help but be reminded it wasn't that long ago Kanye West was considering the the, uh, value of the whole world, and he sounded like a crazy person. Because it kind of is. But that's a whole other subject, right? But as Jesus asks us in our hearts to consider the cost of the whole world, it's astounding. Like, what if you could gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? Like, seriously, think about it for a second, besides being a crazy person. Like, yes, gaining the whole world would be something, but nothing in comparison to losing your soul. What's your soul worth as that? Question proceeds, notice Jesus continues to turn the knife, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You know, I think this is astounding and and beautiful, and we need to sit here for just a second. None of us can pay for our soul with anything that we have. Our soul was purchased by the blood of Jesus. We are bought with a price and set free from this weird plus and minus world in that particular way And as this goes forward, you're going to be judged, particularly with what you do with this Jesus and what happens and comes out of your life. It's hard. Look at this. Verse 27, "...for the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom." To simply put this, there's a lot of stuff to talk about when it comes to all these words right here, but judgment is coming, where you will be judged based on what you have done with Jesus. Have you trusted in what he has accomplished for your redemption? Is this the reality that's defining your life? See, what could define our life is death in a particularly kind of weird way. Today, you could be sitting here and go, I better eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow I'm going to die. Or you could eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday you were dead. In Christ Jesus, we have been made alive. We are people who celebrate in the face of horrible things, not as if they're not horrible, but we can rejoice. We can rejoice because Jesus has dealt with Satan's sin and death. In the judgment, we will have life and have it eternally. We have a way to rejoice and a way to practice sorrow as we experience life redefined by Jesus, life and death. How are you being defined today? What is defining you? Is it your win and loss record somewhere? Is it some sort of place of a lack of sturdiness in your life as you've fallen apart several times when it comes to Jesus? Is it death itself? Is it things that you're holding on to that need to be crucified? How will you be defined? This is a call to respond to the Lord who's rescued us. This is hope for your life. There is no other place to find it but in Christ. If you would, like this is a time to respond, so if you would, join me in praying as we look to respond in communion and singing of songs. Let's pray together.